This episode of Rebel Talk is brought to you by Rebel Tech. Human stories for startups. Rebel Shrebel, you've dropped your dress. Rebel Shrebel, your face is a mess. Rebel Shrebel, how could they know? I've always said that um, what drives you is the passion, what enables you is the technology. I think you need to learn from a young age, as you say, that the being brave is, is that there is no failure, there's only feedback. Rebel Shrebel, you've dropped your dress. Rebel Shrebel. Hello and welcome to Rebel Talk. If you're a first-time listener, this is a podcast that celebrates rebels across every walk of life. Each episode, we talk to changers and troublemakers whose predilection for bending rules drives progress, change and transformation. I'm your host, Mark Schwakey, and today I'm joined by Maria Ingold, the strategic and technical innovator, TED Talker, and daughter of a rocket scientist. Maria was the first student ever at the University of New Mexico to study both computer science and fine art. Her career working in visual technology has taken her to the very top positions in some of the world's biggest and most advanced technology companies. She's a BAFTA judge, an artist, and occasionally an actress. I'm occasionally an actor. We'll get onto that. (laughs) Maria, thanks for joining me. You once said it's good to be a little unknown. It keeps people on their toes. <laughs> yeah. You know what's coming, don't you? What don't we know about you? Or who or what intimidates you? When do you feel uncomfortable? Oh, is gosh. there something you're intimidated well, by? Well, I, I think that I think the, the point is, is that if you're not feeling a little uncomfortable, then you're not outside of your comfort zone. So for the most part, I tend to always do things in which I don't feel comfortable because I haven't pushed myself otherwise. So when I was building the video-on-demand movie service for Virgin Cable, it was back in 2007 and nobody had done it before, and I certainly hadn't hadn't either. So I was a little bit afraid because there was so much complexity to all of this, and and it had to be successful. So I went doing something called barranquismo in Spain, which is cliff jumping. So Wait, you, you actually did throw yourself I off a cliff. I genuinely threw myself off a cliff. So um, I thought... Because I was going to make a joke and say not literally, but you actually did. Yeah, so yeah. I thought, what two things am I most afraid of? And I thought, well, heights and water. And so I, I hiked up to the top of a canyon and then jumped off cliffs into pools of water and abseil down through waterfalls until I got to the end. And I genuinely did almost kill myself with a leap, but I didn't die. And... I went on to build the project and I'm less afraid of of heights and water now. So it's, you know, I think find something else that scares you more if something scares you and go do that and then come back to the thing that scared you and it won't scare you anymore. You and I have a shared experience with a different outcome. On a stag weekend party some years ago, I also threw myself off a cliff (laughs) into the sea, the biggest water there is in the world. And as the moment I did, I was so scared of doing it that I insisted to the instructor that was with a group of us, very a lot of boys that are very close to me, I insisted that I be first to make sure I actually got it done. Yeah. I didn't wuss out. Jumped into the sea, the weather changed, there was a storm, I got sucked down under, didn't appear for three or four minutes at a time. <sighs> and every time I came up gasping for breath and could see air, I could see my friends standing on a cliff rather sort of uncomfortably shuffling as they watched what they thought was the end of me. And I could actually hear my friend Gideon saying, so uh, 
Yeah, lads, what's for dinner tonight? Is it barbecue? You know, it was that uncomfortable <laughs> to watch me struggle. But yes, I got out alive. The difference is I didn't then go and build a world-class technology for Virgin Cable. Maria, you've taken your life cues from a man who studied, among other things, geology, anthropology, physics, maths, linguistics and chemistry. He pretty much invented the in-ear thermometer, if I understand your blog <laughs> yep. correctly, and studied seven languages, six of which he still speaks fluently. But it's led you to a theory and a perspective on the world around lateral thinking and horizontal innovation on diversity of perspective and how we make the impossible possible. Is that something that the future requires of all of us? Is that how our brains are going to need to work if we're to thrive in the years to come? It's actually quite funny because that's how our brains work as children already. So it's just our education system, industry, everything takes us away from that. So... As kids, we have an amazing imagination, and we have this curiosity and wonder about everything. And with the imagination, you combine things that no one has ever thought of combining before, and they make complete and total sense to you as a kid. But as an adult, people say, oh, well, you've got to focus on this specific topic, or you've got to focus on STEM, science, technology, engineering, and maths. And, oh, by the way, your music, well, that's a hobby, And what I'm suggesting is that we change that, is that we say, embrace all of a person. Because what we're doing is essentially looking at vertical innovation, and that leads to evolution. But when you look at lateral innovation, that's where you start getting revolution. And when you start getting three-dimensional innovation, that's when you take all of the different things that are in your brain and combine them to create new things. So how have you managed to retain this ability to think like you did when we were kids? Oh, gosh. Should, well, I, be put, should, I, <laughs> should I be putting my five-year-old in a room right now and go, oh, come on, ideate, ideate, <laughs> no. while you've got it, Solomon, while you've got it. So how, how did you manage to... I, I think part of it is I grew up and became an adult, but I never stopped the curiosity and wonder. And I always look at the world through those eyes. So I'm always like, well, what happens if we do this? And and I'm so thrilled to be on Rebel Talk because I am definitely a rebel. I don't do what people tell me to do. <laughs> what are you a rebel of? When we uh, invited you on the show, it was it started from the seed of computer science and fine art. Well, now, absolutely. I've been on, I've worked on both sides, mm-hmm. but always been categorised in a way that made me feel uncomfortable. You seem to have reveled in it and made a made a TED Talker, speaker, blogger, consultant career out of it. Yes. Well, of course, with my dad, I was raised that this was perfectly normal. So, And my dad was the one real constant in my whole life. So I got to see him operate all the time. And I'd see him uh, being a rocket scientist. I'd go out and I'd see the sled test back in, back in the old days when you still could. And I'd watch him build his cabin. And I'd hear him speak all of his different languages and do all the things that he did. And I just thought, well, everybody did that, that that was a normal thing. I never, no one ever told me I couldn't. So when I was two, that's my first memory, and I was of doing art, drawing a face. So I always knew that I loved art. But because of my father was a scientist, I thought, well, you know, it's not a natural thing, but let me learn about technology. Because I thought, well, I'll combine this into, into computer graphics into this new world. 
And so I went to university and I studied both computer science and fine art. And I was the first person to do t- do so, but nobody ever told me that I couldn't. So what happens to you when somebody tells you that you can't? Do you get extremely violent? Or, you know, what's the, <laughs> what happens to you when, as a rebel when somebody says, actually, that's not the way we do things. That's not the way the world works. You're going to have to choose. I usually ask why. Why are we still doing it this way? What do you really want to achieve? And help people look at why maybe the way that they're doing things right now is stopping them from actually achieving their goals because they're not embracing more than just a narrow view of the world. Anybody who's checked you out online and either heard your TED Talks or read your blog post on Huffington Post, uh, and by the way, if you haven't heard of Maria Ingold, please do check her out online. The stories that you'll you'll come across are, are quite unbelievable and 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 and, you know here's one of them so anyone who has got to know you in the past will know about your love and respect for your father yes a couple of years ago you wrote a letter to elon musk ahead of father's day to present your father with a very special opportunity tell us about that so i kept seeing articles by some guy named elon musk you know and it was just things he was doing around solar and around electric cars and around rockets. And I suddenly went, this guy sounds like my dad. (laughs) They have to meet. And so I wrote a public letter called Father's Day for Rocket Scientists uh, to Elon Musk. And within 24 hours, I had a yes from Elon to meet up with my father. And we scheduled a date for uh, that August. And... I told Dad. <laughs> he was a little blown away by it. And he he and I, he's he's like, but I don't want to fly out there. He's like, I want to drive my truck, you know, my pickup truck from, from New Mexico. So we made the whole thing into a road trip. It was just a wonderful father-daughter week road trip across the desert, arriving into L.A. at sunset. And... Yeah, and then the, the next day we went over to SpaceX, and it was quite surreal. My father was definitely starstruck by Elon Musk, but he was galaxy struck by SpaceX because he's seen so many uh, rocket facilities in his time, and he just he said to them, "This is the best rocket facility I've ever seen." I mean, he was absolutely blown away. It was just it was magic. I mean, I've got my own top 10 list of rocket facilities but (laughs) this is not about me this is about your dad what what were some of the highlights of the day is elon musk as charismatic as you need him to be elon is he was incredibly busy so he he came out he was very lively very excited about everything that was going on and my dad and he talked a little bit about some of the the things that had gone wrong in the past uh that my father had seen gone wrong in, in rocketry and this was just around that time when the rocket had exploded and the, and the issue was with bolts. And so they were they were talking a little bit about that and just how do we think about, you know, again, it's sort of going back to those first principles thinking. So, you know, how do you make sure that all of those pieces are going to work, but at the same time knowing that, you know, a few, a few rockets are actually going to blow up. It's, you know, failure isn't, you know, feedback, not failure. So it was a really, it was interesting to watch them talk. 
about all of that. Um, and then to walk into the doors, because we were talking in the lobby, and then walk in the doors into SpaceX, which, of course, you've got Skynet um, on one side, and you've got Terminators on the other side, and then it opens up into this massive space with rockets, of course, and 3D printers who are printing titanium parts for it. And it's just, it's amazing. And did your dad find that there was stuff to latch onto that he could still contribute to, talk about? I mean, I'm not being facetious here, but understand, has has, has rocket science evolved so much that it was new to your father, or, no. or was there still... They were ha- I mean, there were still conversations to have. Oh, yeah. So he, he clearly understood everything that, that they were doing. Uh, but I think he was impressed by things, some of the new technology, like 3D printing parts. They had a guy who did the carbon fiber on the, on the rockets. You know, like, yeah, we've got this guy who makes sure that everything's really smooth. And he knows that this is, this is a bit where there could be a problem. And there's like a little chalk circle there and sort of you know, get that sorted out. And it's just... It's yeah, it's amazing to go into, and so we're in there, and there's people walking around in Occupy Mars t-shirts. My dad's like, "This, I want this." <laughs> the know? t-shirts. The t-shirts. He just loved. He loved the whole thing. I mean, I think he just felt it was. It's so vibrant, and I think that he really latched onto that because that's how he feels about rocket science. What was it like for you as a daughter watching him have the day of his life? I well, I. I'm just so proud of him. So, and I, clearly he's pretty proud of me too. So, it was just fun. I think he was in shock for some of it. I was I was probably a little bit more chilled than he was, but he was just he was just he thought it was amazing. Now, your dad's second grade teacher said it never amount to anything because he <laughs> because he took longer than all the other students to do anything. And you say he took longer because he was thinking. He was thinking yes. about what he was doing rather than just doing. Yes. Because he'd been told to. So yes. so even at a young age, your dad was laterally innovating. He didn't want to just accept something at face value. And I, mean, and, and I think that that's still very true. It's just because somebody tells you something doesn't mean you shouldn't question it and, and understand it. And I think if we did that a lot more, whether it's, it's personally or professionally, we'd, we'd probably get a little further. Did your dad ever go back to the second grade teacher and write a, a screw you? Or? No, no. If only I knew who uh, who the second grade teacher was, you I would have. Now announced that we have that second grade teacher here. Come into the studio. No, we're not that. We're not that far ahead of ourselves as a podcast. You promised Elon Musk your dad would change his life. Did he change Elon Musk's life? You I... promised in a letter to him. Come and meet my dad. He'll change your life. <laughs> I, was that just good pitching? As probably good pitching. Uh, I don't know that they had quite a long enough conversation to be able to change his life completely. But if my dad was allowed to be part of SpaceX, for example, on a, on a regular consulting basis, then I have no doubt that he would. Elon, give us a call. <laughs> um, listen, let's go back to you now, because I'm interested in your childhood. You grew up, from the blogs that we've read, you grew up... Your your description, off-grid, and your dad built your place down in New Mexico with his bare hands and you grew up, part of your childhood was spent in, in, in uh, military bases and he seems to have shaped your worldview in a way I can only hope to do for my young children. So what was he like when you were a kid? What is a rocket scientist like at the weekend when he's off duty? Uh, so just to clarify a bit, um, he worked on the military base but we didn't live there, we lived in the small town nearby and then when I was about 11 to 13, 
we moved up to the mountains to live in the cabin that he'd been working on. And that was off-grid, and that was actually before he'd put in all the solar. So I was doing my homework by kerosene lamps. We had an outhouse. (laughs) But we had views of 120 miles from the roof, and it was on the edge of the national forest, and we'd have all sorts of wild creatures coming through, some that could kill you. (laughs) And it was a fantastic experience at the time. Uh, But I think about the time I hit 13, I started going, well, why, why am I not like, like other kids, you know, sort of like, yeah, you start feeling the peer pressure about that age. Were teenage years hard for that? As in, why am I not like other kids? And by the way, I guess that's the same for most of us, right? So, Well, I think teenage years are hard for anyone. So... I was a bit of a punk new waver, so in a very small town in New Mexico. So that was my way of of kind of rebelling against trying to be like everybody else. But Dad at the weekend, Dad would be working on his old cars. He'd be working on the cabin. So he wasn't trying to exclude me because I was a girl. He was just going, hey, I'm doing this. I want to learn about what I'm doing. And I I completely recommend that for all parents is, is... if if you love something, share it with your kids, regardless of if they're boys or girls. And he always did that with me. So I got to learn. And I have this thing for power tools because mm-hmm. of <laughs> just sort of the osmosis of being around them. And I I somehow know I'm like, oh, I need a vice grip for that or I need a jigsaw for that. And I, I just somehow know that what the tools are that I need to be able to create something. So... Growing up around that was was wonderful, and but he was always tinkering with things. But I tease him a little bit. I'm a I'm a finisher, and I tease my dad that he's a starter but not a finisher because he now has seventeen antique cars. He's got the cabin, which is massive, a barn which he built, and then uh, four storerooms on top of that, another house and a and a garage, full of things that he's working on. So he's now starting to finish the old 1930 V16 Cadillac, which is a lot of fun, and I can't wait till that's done. Do you think there's a road trip in it as soon as it's done? Well, I hope so. Yeah. Another, another, another <laughs> I mean, great yeah. father-daughter road trip. Is he well, your dad? Yeah, my dad's 83, and he's he's still a rocket scientist. He's still climbing on the roof of the barn. And... Yeah. Where's he living? <laughs> uh, New Mexico. He's still there? Yeah. You live here? Yeah, but I go back, and he's coming over in a couple of weeks, and I'm, I'm very, very excited. I mean, my dad's... Um, Back when he was he was brought back, they asked him if he could help them solve some problems. And he figured out how to improve the accuracy of um, a single component by 1,400% using a printout, a ruler, and a calculator. Mm. And that's because he was applying those, those old principles. Yeah, so they used to print out uh, on that old green and white sprocket paper long printouts and, and do the walking of the graph and stuff. And he always says the mind is an image processing beast. And this, again, is using that three-dimensional thinking. It's taking all of the things that you've learned and using that part of the brain to think about things in a way rather than just saying here's some statistics and here's some numbers it's here's an image and you look at it and you go well that looks wrong that looks out of place and you start drilling into that more and and that's where you start finding out things and what do you do with this blessed and rare perspective because you know you've grown up with these cues uh you're now a consultant you 
see the world differently from most of your peers, mm-hmm. which puts you in a privileged position. But then, you know, after working your way up from multimedia programmer at IBM to the position of, say, CTO for the Disney-Sony joint venture FilmFlex movies, you're now a consultant. So what are you able to help your clients with if they can't see the world the same way you can? If How are you able to, well, enable them? What can you leave them with if they don't have your worldview and perspective? That must be quite a difficult challenge, or...? Oh, it's fun. I really enjoy it. So, again, I approach everything with that curiosity and wonder. So I ask a lot of questions about... With what they want, what they already know, what works, what doesn't work. And then I start finding solutions that they haven't thought of. So in one case recently, I worked with a client and I solved something in one thirteenth of the time that the previous time said was impossible. So you all the previous research... You couldn't just leave research... it at a simple tenth of the time, could you? Well, Had no. <laughs> I, am, I can be fairly precise, but I can also be very abstract. Yeah, this um... is the daughter of somebody who approved, <laughs> improved the efficiency of landing rockets from 200 miles to 3 miles to save lives of astronauts. Tell me about the career. I mean, you've led the world to get us to where we are on video on demand. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. I don't know how much you implicitly or explicitly do campaign or encourage or talk about being a senior and super successful woman in STEM. But where I've come from through my years in tech, it was a real issue. It was a real issue that everybody knew they needed to get behind and needed to work up and talk about and give opportunities to. Where are we at the moment? Is this something that's still very much live in our in our industry? Unfortunately, yes. So there's still sexism, there's still sexual harassment, there's still bullying, and there's still the gender pay gap. Uh, And all of those things are things we still have to address. So I've always had to work very hard to have respect. And that's even though I'm very, very good at what I do, it's still dealing with the boys club that's that's been there so but i haven't let that put me off if anything it just makes me more determined to keep going for myself and for others for the, for all the the girls and women who follow me to show what can be done and and to change things by being there and being the role model rather than necessarily going out and talking about it all the time Yeah, there's a bunch of us that haven't quit on this yet. Yeah. What's been important for me is over the 25 years of my career is I've realized, especially with running my company, is that my values are integrity, honesty, passion, and fun. Because if you don't have the integrity and the honesty, then you end up with those types of bullies that nobody does anything about. And if you don't love what you're doing why the hell are you doing it? <laughs> you, know? you must love what you're doing and it must make it fun. And if you can make it that way for everyone, then yeah, what a, what a great world it would be. It's kind of strange because at the time that I went to university in 1986 and did computer science and fine art, there were 40% of us in computer science was women. Uh, nobody had told us that we couldn't do it. And now I'm a, a little worried that we have so much conversation about all of the issues, if that's putting people off. But at the same time, we need to resolve all of that as well, which is why I think that's another set of discussions we have to all have in parallel. 
at the same time as driving that curiosity uh, and and uh, passion for whatever you love as a child, and then um, giving them the technical tools so that 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 world just seems natural rather than one that you you think of avoiding when you turn 15. And so you think, well, I'll go away from it. It's just part of your life. So that there is nothing. And if kids are doing this, boys and girls are doing this at four, hopefully it just seems natural that everybody's working with technology and that it's not an issue. The gender isn't an issue. And in the meantime, hopefully we can address everything else. It's funny. One of the thoughts that I had when sort of researching you and figuring out what we were going to talk about today was... I kept being pulled back to uh, the experience I had uh, last summer looking for my son's first school. And we all take a great interest in school and education as soon as... I mean, everybody's got an interest in education Mm -hmm. because we were all at school. So we all have an experience. But as soon as you start trying to put your kids into the system, the fear and drive and, 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 and all the motivations you feel are really powerful. Like, I, how do I give this kid who relies on us to do so the best opportunity for a world in which, well, a world that we don't know? It's 20 years hence he's going to be out in the world working in an economy with, that I've never seen the like of, with jobs that are yet to be created. How on earth do you prepare somebody for that in the best way possible? And your thoughts go back to the school education you had with, you know... <laughs> That wouldn't have done. My, 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 my education simply wouldn't have done today, let alone for the future. But I was delighted to find we found a school for, for, for my boy whose entire ethos is about a world built on kindness, um, creativity, critical thinking, um, some computer science in there, even at age four. Um, and surprisingly, and I wrote a blog on this uh, about three months ago, on taking risks calculated mm-hmm. risk and and it's actually written down within the ethos of the school to teach these kids to take risks mm-hmm. in order not for them to win or lose but to make them brave mm-hmm. and i you know we listen to the um we listen to the stuff coming out of the school we take part in all the pta stuff but that just feels like giving this kid the best shot if we don't know what the world's going to look like this is the school system's latest best bet for preparing our kids for an unknown future is that something is that something you see across the board or is there still a problem where we're teaching our kids not to be creative i think that's a wonderful school and i've the first i've ever heard of something like that so at, at that age group and i think that's wonderful it's the kind of thing that i've been encouraging people to do so I think you need to learn from a young age, as you say, that the being brave is is that there is no failure. There's only feedback, and that uh, you you need to take risks, but you need to know how to calculate the risk as well, and understand is it going to kill you, <laughs> uh, or is it is it something that you keep making mistakes until you get fantastically good at something. And uh, starting computing quite early, I think that's great because if you bring it in as something that seems natural, so, hey, if you're into music, uh, here you can do something with technology and music, or if you're kinesthetic and, and you could pre- 3D print something, or if, you, if you're quite visual, there's you know, so many different you know video games, VR, all sorts of things that you could learn to play with as a kid that make it seem like a natural way to learn rather than sitting down and going, well, here's some code and, and here, 
write this thing you're not interested in. So it's a way of combining those those passions. And I've always said that um, what drives you is the passion, what enables you is the technology. So it's just a tool. Mm. And if we if we teach it as a tool to help enable the things that kids love and that they're curious about and everything already, we'll actually get more kids into technology, but we'll get them in in a way that we've never thought of before. Einstein always said that the best scientists were artists as well. And that's because he did a lot of his thinking in a way that wasn't wasn't in mathematics. It was through music or, or through imagery. And that's a very different way of thinking and problem solving in your head is pulling all of these things together and saying, hey, it's okay to learn everything about everything. You can have focuses, but if, you, if you're going to focus on strongly on something, then broaden it out as well by by learning something else or just doing something unrelated or just allowing yourself to be curious about all the things you're curious about. Listen, we do a um, very quick fire round here called 60 Second Rebellion. Sure. So we're going to test you out as a rebel. Advice to your 16-year-old self. Trust your instincts always. Your 16-year-old self's advice to the grown-up you. (laughs) Uh, Don't put up with any shit and always be yourself. The most important single character for any founder, entrepreneur. You have to be completely optimistic about everything because if, if you don't believe that anything is possible, you will never try to make the impossible happen. Maria, you're given the power and money to solve one big global problem and one tiny, annoying, day-to-day small problem. What big and small problem do you solve? Well, the, the big problem, I think, is around innovation. Creating an education system that allows kids to think vertically and laterally and uh, combine that into three-dimensional thinking, that, where we create an industry that has companies that we allow to think both vertically and laterally, and where we create not just additional revenue opportunities, but where we're also not just evolving, but creating, you know, revolutionary stuff for the future. What's your day-to-day? Oh, I just wish I had more time, but that's not exactly a trivial thing. I think public transport is still a real thing to try to figure out. What's your tube line? I'm on the northern line. Mm -hmm. You know, how do we we find uh, time to exercise more, yet get around more quickly? And finally, what are you most excited about? What am I most excited? Life. Oh my gosh, everything. The next thing that's going to happen. You know, the, the whatever I'm going to do that I've never done before. Fantastic. Maria and Gold, thank you so much for giving us your time. It's been a pleasure to meet you. Thank you very much. Send our very best to Norm. I will do indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Nicole Lyons, co-founder of Rebel Tech. Uh, for post-match analysis, which, by the idea, we should totally credit at this point. It's in the fourth episode. <laughs> we stole this from James O'Brien's Unfiltered podcast. Thanks, we re- James. We re- <laughs> James. We really liked it and unashamedly just nicked it. We haven't even renamed it. It's just exactly as he... Uh, what do you think? That was um, Maria Ingold. One thing when I listened throughout the whole thing was the absence of kind of any kind of siblings or her mum. So I don't know if that's something that we know more about she says her dad is the person she talks about because he's the constant 
there was a lot of people that came and went in her life, uh, some of whom inspired her and taught her a lot and some of whom inspired her and taught her a lot about who she didn't want to be. Something I couldn't help... You know, when you're talking to someone, you can't help but put yourself in their position. And I thought of myself in hers and kind of... Your dad is doing all these great things but actually everything he touches, he solves. He kind of fixes problems left, right and centre. He's an absolute genius. And I kind of thought, oh... How do you live yeah. up to that? Yeah, like well, there had to be yeah. a, a a point in her life where that must have been a struggle, surely. If the one figure in your life where you um, that inspires you to go and do is always on and always solving and always successful, what kind of pressure does that put upon you in school? You yeah. know, yeah, yeah. In, in school and 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 just you know you want you want to you're really proud, but at the same time thinking, oh God, I, I need to live up to surely they live up to their expectations surely yeah that was post-match analysis with mark schwakey nicole lyons uh, and the shadow of james o'brien thank you very much <laughs> bye that's all for this episode of rebel talk i'm your host mark schwakey thanks so much for joining us my thanks also to our brilliant production team at hard six audio to spirit landing king's cross for the beautiful studio and to my rebel tech co-host nicole lyons and producer meg wright until next time up the rebels Kind of, you you seem to have passed on your habit to me. I don't know what's going on. I'm now a tapper. Great. And I'm getting your curly hair. (laughs) I wish you were getting my curly hair.